Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is musician, performer, songwriter, arranger, producer, actor, director, international DJ, activist, historian, and teacher, Steve Van Zant. Also known as Little Steven, Van Zant is a member of the New Jersey Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, a nominee to the Radio Hall of Fame, is recognized internationally as one of the world's foremost authorities on both contemporary and traditional rock and roll, and most recently, a New York Times best-selling author. Steve Van Zandt is a founding member of Bruce Springsteen's East Street Band and has gone on to become a successful solo artist in his own right, recording and performing with his band Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. An accomplished actor, he co-starred in all seven seasons of the iconic TV show The Sopranos, playing Tony Soprano's right-hand man Silvio Dante, a character he created. He also starred in Lilyhammer, one of the very first original scripted series to air on Netflix. In 2001, he launched Little Steven's Underground Garage, the most successful syndicated rock music radio show of the past 50 years. He also created and produces the first two channels of original content on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, The Underground Garage and Outlaw Country. In 2006, he launched his record label Wicked Cool to further support new rock and roll. His extremely colorful autobiography, Unrequited Infatuations, is out now. We're having a party. Everybody's swinging. Dancing to the music. On the radio. So listen, Mr. DJ. Keep those things play. Cause I'm having such a good time. Hi everyone, welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest today, live from Greenwich Village in New York City, the esteemed Stephen Van Zandt, Little Stephen. Steve, welcome. Morning, Pete. How are you? I'm good, man. I was just telling you off mic. You know, I just finished reading your incredible book, Unrequited Infatuations, that was released by Hachette last September. An incredible book. How's the response been to the book so far? Really good, you know? I think I accomplished what I was hoping, which was trying to make the thing useful to people. I wanted to try and maintain a balance between three things. The, the narrative, obviously. The history that I've kind of observed, I only missed the first decade, you know, the history of rock and roll, and, uh, and the crafts that I've been involved with over the years. You know, so that balance between those three things, I think we achieved it. Hopefully, in the end, uh, the book will be useful for somebody. Yeah, not only is there a lot of information in the book, but there's a lot of life lessons of kind of, you know, hey, kids, don't do this at home. You know, learn learn, <laughs> learn from Uncle Stevie's mistakes, you know, a little bit. <laughs> That's the whole book. <laughs> the whole book is, <laughs> do as I say, not as I did. <laughs> I, I, also, I, I also, you know, you, you pick up very early on in the book that that you're very unapologetically you in this book. If somebody pissed you off, we're going to know about it. And you're not looking to be a peacemaker or extend an olive branch. If, you know, if there's shit to be said, you're going to say it. 
Well, yeah, in some cases, I mean, I, I, I included a few. I left out most of them, actually. <laughs> I didn't want the book to be really, you know, negative at all. But but the the examples I left in were left in for a purpose, you know, because um, the jerks that are still in there had to do with interfering with the artistic process, right. you know, which I consider sacred. So, you know, uh, a few of them uh, get, get, you know, notable <laughs> mentions because of that. But I left out most of the uh, jerks of our business, which are... <laughs> Considerable. Well, you got to you got to leave something for volume two, right? (laughs) Uh, It's very tempting to make a book like this total revenge, you know. Uh, But I just said, no, 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 no. Let's not go there. Let's keep it mostly a positive thing, and and, uh, you know, you got to have a little spice in there just for fun. Yeah, totally. I mean, you talk about the artistic process. One thing that is a, a general takeaway theme from the book is you say that your life has been a triumph of art over commerce. And you're still trying to break even. So, you know, knowing that, if you go back 50 years ago, 55 years ago, would you do anything different? Well, yeah, mostly I would make sure I had a manager. I mean, I did try at the time. I was aware of the importance of of management. And if you look through history at who succeeds and who doesn't succeed, it is management. Okay, it's not talent. It's not luck. It's not ambition. It's the manager. And I knew that. But um, I just couldn't settle on anybody. And uh, I really, really regret that. Before I wrote the book, I, I would have said my biggest regret was leaving the E Street Band when I did. But going back, really uh, transporting myself back to that moment and, and really analyzing it, I realized that um, I thought I was messing with fate back then. But I think it turns out that I was fulfilling a destiny, you know, at the point where I thought my life ended. And for years, I carried that around thinking, you know, just that was that was the end of my life. Everything I've accomplished, I accomplished since then, since I thought my life ended. So in the end, I think that's what makes the book a little bit more interesting. You know, the first half of the book is is, is a local kid makes it to the top in, in rock and roll. And that's that's a good story by itself. It, it is. But the second half of the book is, is when you, the, the bigger themes come in mm-hmm. you know, that, that I think are more relatable by people who are not musicians or not, not in the business, you know, not nothing to do with rock and roll, you know, the search for identity in, in this world, the search for purpose, the search for spiritual enlightenment and things like that, that are, you know, I think more broadly related to, and, and that's the whole second half of the book. So in the end, uh, what I thought was a big regret turns out to be the fulfilling, I think of my destiny, but I, but I do regret not having a manager, which everybody needs, you know, content is one thing, but uh, marketing is the, is the other half of, of that story. You right. know, it's not, it's not a separate thing. Right. Elvis had the talent, but it was Colonel Tom Parker who went out and, and totally. sold it to the world, right? Absolutely right. All four of the big managers, which I tried to get into the Hall of Fame, right. I only got two of them in. But, but those four, the four big managers. Brian Epstein. Four, right. Peter Grant. Uh, no, no. For me, it, it, it was it was um, the Colonel uh, Albert Grossman, Andrew uh, Oldham, right. and Brian Epstein. Right, got it. You know, Elvis, Dylan, the Beatles, and Stones. Of I think you know, in all four cases, those managers absolutely made a difference. And I and I do not believe success is inevitable. All right, people kind of think that. Oh, the guy was so talented, he would have made it anyway. That's bullshit. 
Okay, I know I know it too intimately and too well to, to know that that's not true. That's a recurring theme in the book, where if you make great art, but nobody hears it, you know, whose right. fault is that? That's right. And it really is not the artist's fault, because you can't be expected to do everything. But that's the manager's job. You know, you need, you know, a manager's first job is advocate. You know, you need the advocacy. You need somebody... You know, in addition to doing the business and, 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 and the rest of the obvious things, but it's the advocacy that matters. Somebody's selling you to somebody else right. saying, hey, this cat's important, man. Right. You know, this, right. this guy's doing something that's important and needs to be heard, you know, and making sure that the marketing is there. Um, that's extremely important. It's essential. Well, you talk about the relationship in the book that Bruce ends up having with John Landau to the point where you're in the studio with them and all these guys are doing is just talking because they're spending all this time plotting, scheming, reflecting. And that's a lot of the role of a manager, too, is a consigliere, which is a word that comes up a lot in your book. Absolutely true. We all need that. You know, everybody, you can't think of everything. You know, you just can't. Your focus should be on the art you know, on the craft. You should not have to be worrying too much about the marketing side of it. It helps to be aware of it, but you're not going to go out there and you can't sell yourself. It can't be done. So if you, as little Steven, the artist, had had your Colonel Tom from the very beginning, life may have been different. Yeah, it would have been interesting because... Um, it would have required a bit more work than I think a manager is used to. <laughs> <laughs> the normal artist does the same thing, you know, has, a, has an identity that's, that's pretty set. You have a, an identifiable personality in your work. Usually it's the same band, for instance. I had five albums in the 80s that were completely different from each other, musically, uh, practically different genres. And all based on themes, five different themes relating to politics. And the album mu albums musically were the soundtracks to those themes. Right. So they're all very, very different. Very artistically satisfying, but absolutely confusing, I'm sure, to an audience right. who gets used to, you know, a certain thing. So it would have taken a little bit extra work, I think, to um, explain what I was doing. But it certainly would have helped. I mean, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, to the current day, the happy ending is I heard you have some managers who are friends of ours now who are doing a great job for you, who you like. They're, yeah, they're wonderful guys, and they're only 40 years late. <laughs> well, speaking of 40 years late, let's go back to the beginning. I learned a lot from this book. The first thing is I always associate you with the state of New Jersey, which is where I live, so always you know, in my heart. But you're not originally from New Jersey. I didn't realize that, that you're originally from Watertown, Massachusetts, and that you weren't born Van Zant. That was not your original last name. Yeah, yeah, it was a... Uh... It's an Italian American family, and um, and my mother divorced when I was young, when I was two or three, because we moved to New Jersey when I was seven. I never knew my original father, and uh, I grew up in my grandmother and grandfather's house, and it was like an Italian village, aunts and uncles everywhere, and uh, I was the first grandchild, which is like a big deal in an Italian family. The trauma that is supposed to be associated with a divorce really didn't happen for me. I mean, I got a lot of love and, and was surrounded by it. And I think 
that helped make me secure as I analyzed it. Again, as I'm writing the book, I, I have to analyze all these things. My analysis was partly that love and, and security that was established right then in, 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 you know, when I'm two, three, four, five years old, I think helped me be secure my whole life because I've never really felt insecure, even though my whole life is totally insecure. <laughs> but I never have really felt like in a panic about whatever. And I think it comes from, from there. It would help me later when I got into the crazy political situations that right. I was doing for research. You know, right. yeah, I'm Italian-American from Boston, yeah. So before Van Zandt, your last name was Lento. Yeah. Your family name is Lento. And, and I love the fact that... Years and years later, you named some characters on Lilyhammer that same family name. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, Nana Lento and, uh, yeah, Uncle Sal. <laughs> but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Talk about growing <laughs> up as, you know, you moved to Middletown, New Jersey when you're seven years old. Talk about what your life was like then and memories of, of New Jersey leading up to that first moment that you refer to as the Big Bang when the Beatles played at Sullivan. Talk a little bit about that. It was a very suburban uh, existence. You know, we, we were part of that early creation of suburbia, which was, uh, you know, a post-World War II thing. But, but in, by the 50s, really started to expand. There was a housing development and we were like the second or third house in. So I just remember these big mounds of dirt where the houses were going to be and uh, playing with my first friend who was a, a, a black kid, uh, the son of the, uh, you know, the contractor. And then um, uh, we had a park, of the, you know, the, in those days you had a, a housing development and there would always be a park attached to it. So uh, you'd go down to the park and you'd play uh, all the sports I was kind of small, but uh, enthusiastic, uh, you know, know, baseball, football, basketball, whatever it was, you know, kind of a normal childhood, I think. And and I was doing pretty good at school. And then when the Big Bang happened, uh, February 9th, 1964, the whole country watched this variety show that was on every Sunday night that the whole family would watch on the one TV. And this very unlikely host named Ed Sullivan would introduce uh, something for all different family members, you know, puppets for kids and opera for the old folks and something for the teenagers. And something for the teenagers that night was was the Beatles. And that was the end. That was the end of my being good in school. That was the end of me (laughs) doing sports. You know, my whole life changed at that moment. My future obsession would be completed four months later when the Rolling Stones came. Right. You mentioned that the Beatles opened the door or showed you the world and the Stones invited you in. Yeah, because by the time we discovered the Beatles, they just were a little too good. You know, you couldn't quite say, oh, I can do that, you know. A little unattainable, (laughs) right? Yeah, ridiculously great harmony and, and just very sophisticated. I mean, literally halfway through the career. So the Stones just made it look easier and yeah. (laughs) More relatable. I love the scene in your book where you talk about listening to I Want to Hold Your Hand through a transistor radio with your brother, Billy. And Mm. there's unbridled joy happening that you guys start laughing when you hear the high notes. Yeah, just spontaneously burst out laughing. 
when they hit, uh, I want to hold your hand, you know. That was just what the, the Beatles were communicating. They had a weird, some kind of, a, you know, electrical plug-in. In their minds, you know, they were just kind of copying American rock and roll and soul music. But they just added something that was something new. Maybe because they were, all, you know, all lead singers, really. But um, certainly Paul and John, when the guy singing harmony is also a terrific lead singer, it's different. You know, it's different. That's why the Temptations were different. That's why, you know, Buffalo Springfield and Traffic mm. and, you know, Moby Grape. I mean, some of the, some of the, the, the greatest bands, Cream, when, when they sang together. You know, the greatest bands had, had just a, a lot of talent in those days. And that's why they only lasted for two or three albums usually. <laughs> but those two or three albums were, you know, literally um, game-changing albums that will last forever. But anyway, Paul would hit those the high notes. And the thing that made the Beatles a little bit different, they were they were kind of doing girl group harmony. You know, they were covering, you know, girl groups, which I think was an unusual move. Mm. You know, well, everybody was covering American music back then. I mean, I think the reason why the Beatles started writing was because every band in Liverpool, and there was a ridiculous amount of them. Some people say 100 bands. Jeez. All right. It, and I, I mean, literally a hundred bands in the early sixties and they're all doing the same songs because there wasn't that many rock and roll songs released. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the beginning. Right. So you know, by 1959, 1960, 61, you knew every single rock record that came out right. and you played it. So every band is playing exactly the same songs. And, you know, they were figuring like, Hey, the only way we're going to, you know, separate ourselves from the pack, we got to start, writing you know writing something and and uh and they did a good yeah. job yeah <laughs> going back to this big bang moment one thing i didn't realize also until i read the book was one of the reasons that the beatles appearance on ed sullivan was so cathartic for the nation was that it was just a few months after the assassination of jfk and i read in the book yeah. which i didn't know that jfk's assassination was actually on your 13th birthday so yeah. that must have, you know, informed you in a way that a lot of us who were born later can't really understand the political upheaval that was going on at the same time that you're growing up as a kid in Jersey. Yeah, it, it turned out to be uh, interesting timing. I was a little too young to really be aware of what a horrible you know, nightmare that was beginning. You know, that was the beginning of our nightmare that I think continues today. That was kind of the beginning of it right there. And I didn't, I was a little bit too young to be aware of it, but you could feel it. You could feel that uh, the whole country became just depressed. And along comes this, like I say, th these guys, and, and keep in mind, we'd never really seen bands. I'd never seen a band before. Not that played and sang. You know, if you went to your high school dance, there was an instrumental group. So the, the idea of four or five guys singing and playing was really a, a whole new thing. Mm -hmm. And here they come and just these four guys and they're making this sound that is literally unbridled joy. I mean, that's that's what it was. And it would have been whether the country was depressed or not. You know, it, it would have been the same fantastic sound. But in that moment, I think it was especially it was like a. A life preserver, you know. It was cathartic. And one of the things that I love about how you end your book 
is there's an epilogue where you're actually performing on stage with Paul McCartney, which you write in the third person. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. Mm-hmm. And it's the same on Bridal Joy. So many years later that McCartney yeah. and the Beatles brought to you and your brother Billy through the transistor radio. It was a beautiful moment in the book. Thank you. Yeah. I love third person. You know, if it was up to me, the whole thing would have been third person. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the publisher would not go for it. It was just the uh, the prologue and the epilogue, you know. The prologue is my favorite part of the book in third person. At what point after that did you pick up your first guitar and, inspired by the Beatles, decide to go down this path of rock and roll? Well, just, just a couple months before that, my grandfather started showing me a, a song from his village in Calabria. So I had like just a couple of months head start, you know, not much. Of course, I wanted an electric guitar when I saw them, which I got. And then, um, you know, uh, went and took one lesson. And in those days, you know, lessons were a whole different animal. You know, uh, you start to learn old McDonald had a farm and they want to teach you the notes, you know, how to learn music. Well, that was not what I was interested in. So the guy said I had natural talent. So I was like, all right, good. What do I need you for? You know, so I didn't, I didn't go back, back. but you know, but they weren't showing you Beatles songs like they do today. I'm sure you'd learn from watching them on TV, you know, watching where their fingers went, listening to those records over and over again. Some of your friends would pick up a different chord. Hey, you know, I learned this B7 today, you know, look at this chord, you know? And then I, I started going to the village and, um, where I live now, and seeing um, bands, you know, any band that came to town. We had some local bands, by the way. We had uh, three, four big local bands, and you'd go and see them. And again, you'd stand in front of the guitar player and and learn from them. That was how you learned. Then you'd go home and try and figure out the records and slow down the records, you know, at a different speed when it came to like a solo. So you could try and figure it out. So that was it. You was you were on your own. And it wasn't long after that that you started putting your own bands together, right? That's 14, 15, yeah. 16 years old. Yeah, yeah. I joined uh, the first band as a singer. And then within a year or so, I got good enough on, on guitar to start my own band, The Source. And, and, I, and I played lead guitar and sang lead and was the leader of the group. Yeah, but just about, about when I was around 16. So this is all in the mid-60s now. In 1965, you write in the book that you and Bruce meet for the first time in Middletown at a club called Hullabaloo. Do you remember that first meeting? Yeah, actually. We had the great fortune. First of all, we were the luckiest generation ever. And uh, I'm the luckiest guy in the luckiest generation. But we had seven or eight or nine rock and roll TV shows on every week, if you can imagine a world like that. One of which was a show called Hullabaloo, and they ended up having a franchise of clubs that created a circuit in our area. One was in Bruce's town, Freehold. One was in my town, Middletown. And one was in Asbury Park. And that created like a triangle, but then with the beach clubs sort of created a fourth quadrangle or whatever that is. And so it became a circuit. Like it was like a circuit for the the three hullabaloo clubs and the beach clubs was our region. At that point, I was still singing, I think, with the shadows. And Bruce came in and and, uh, we met, you know, very briefly because, you you know, you you knew all the bands in your area. There wasn't that many. But these clubs were a place for like-minded kids to come together and, you know, kind of pray at the altar of rock and roll in the early days, right? And that's what you did. And and, and this is something that, you know, I think goes underappreciated. 
the Beatles completely changed the culture. It wasn't just for musicians. It became a band culture after the Beatles. If you went out at night with your friends, you either went to a drive-in movie or you went and saw a band. You know, or if you were in a band, you went out and did a gig. I mean, that was it. That's what everybody did. And again, our generation, and I haven't seen this before our generation or since, there were clubs built just for us. Right. You know, under 18, whatever the, whatever the number was. And we had the hullabaloo clubs and a place called Latin de Vous. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and um, there was dozens of places to play. VFW halls, right. you know, school dances, beach clubs. So you guys all played in bands, sometimes together, sometimes apart. Your friend John Lyon becomes a part of it. You name him Southside Johnny. There, there's a whole part of this that goes on over the next several years, yeah? Yeah. I know, um, I'm, I know I'm jumping around a little bit. but No, no, no. I'm just trying to make it, you know, kind of understandable here for, for those who are not there, <laughs> which is... Uh, <laughs> Essentially, you could divide the, the, the musician's sort of path uh, into three categories. You know, the, the teenage years, the bar band years, and then getting into the business. Got it. You know, so Johnny Lyon and the, and the Upstage Club was the beginning of the transition to the bar band years. The, the Upstage Club being in Asbury Park, right? Yeah, yeah. Still, still categorized in the teenage category. Because the teenage category was this wonderful, wonderful freedom that no one would ever have again. There wasn't any adults that had any idea what you were doing. No idea. So when you went to play a beach club or high school dance or upstage or hullabaloo, nobody was telling you what to play. You could play whatever you wanted. And that would change, you know, once you get to the bar band stage, that all, that all changes. Now they, they give you a whole set of rules. But um, that wonderful freedom as a kid, you know, you'd never see that again. And so at what point did all of these legendary early Jersey Shore bands, you know, like, um, was it Dr. Doom and the Sonic Boom and Bruce's Steel Mill? You know, at what point chronologically was all this happening? This all is under that area of the upstage years. The upstage club was open from eight o'clock at night till five in the morning for kids. <laughs> no, no booze. And people would go there after the other clubs closed because the clubs in those days were open till three o'clock in the morning. And then after that, people would come jam till five, six in the morning. Um, so once we all gravitated to upstage, which was after our initial teenage bands, Right. Well, we graduated high school and then things started to kind of fall apart as far as the, your teenage bands, because guys went to college or they joined the military or whatever. So we all gravitated to Asbury Park into this upstage club. And now we started having a different band every three months. And now now we started to experiment. We're still learning. and We're still we're still you know, you, you are what you like when you grow up. And, and we had gone through this incredible uh, education of a different trend every single year through the 60s. You know, and I, and I, and I go, go through it in some detail in the book, how every, every year had a different trend. You know, the British Invasion in 64, folk rock in 65, where different, different genres took over. And then you would learn all about that genre. 
And then next year you do something else. And that's how it happened right up to the seventies when the great fragmentation took place. And, and now, um, you know, you were starting to take a little bit of this identity for your identity, a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of blues, a little bit of folk, a little bit of psychedelic or whatever it might be. And you start starting to form your identity. You know, we would, we would have a country band one day. We would have a psychedelic band. We would have a blues band. You know, you'd have different, different genre bands according to those trends and learn a little bit about that genre and, and, and you'd keep whatever you wanted to keep from it and then go from one band to the other. So yeah, Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom really was more or less a scam to have all of our friends uh, work because um, the Hullabaloo Club in Asbury always needed an opening act. You know, so we opened for everybody who came through, uh, Humble Pie and Black Sabbath and Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, you know. And we just put everybody we knew in the band. You know, we had guys, you know, playing Monopoly on stage. We had guys. Uh, <laughs> it was just a, it was just kind of a scam to, to, to get everybody working, you know. It was like a mobile uh, commune, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because, uh, you know, we were just trying to break into that bar band world, which was tough to break into. Because we weren't going to, we didn't want to play by those rules, which was you had to play the top 40 that was on the radio. And by the 70s, that was not cool. Uh, it was it was the coolest music in the 60s. You know, that's why the 60s was a renaissance period. Yeah. When the greatest art being made is also the most commercial. Right. But by the 70s, you know, albums had become popular instead of singles. And singles were like not cool anymore for a while. And the bars were demanding that you play these hit singles that you didn't really like. So we were very fortunate when we found the Stone Pony Club, which was about to close. I think the roof had caved in and we made a deal with them. Say, listen, we won't charge you anything. You know, uh, we'll take the door. You take the bar. But we're playing whatever we want. Which band was that, Stephen? That was Southside Johnny and Asbury Jukes. Got it. That was the beginning of the bar band years where we completely revolutionized what would happen in Jersey bars at that point. You write in the book that, you know, what started with a few people ended up with thousands of people showing up. And that's a very happy club owner if the band is keeping people drinking and dancing all night. So, but that was the thing. That was the thing. Yes, right. we were, you had to be a dance band. You right. had to be a dance band. And, uh, and people danced to rock and roll back then. You mentioned putting together, you know, you take John Lyon, you you name him Southside Johnny. I love this quote in the book where he wasn't really, even though you wrote most of the songs for the band when the band started doing originals, he wasn't your prototypical frontman and because he was a bit of a misanthrope. And I like that what you write in the book that he was more W.C. Fields than W.C. Handy. I, I laughed out <laughs> loud when I read that. That's awesome. <laughs> That is a good line. about <laughs> <laughs> that one. Yeah, he was just a miserable uh, son of a bitch, you know. He still is. <laughs> <laughs> at, at what point? At what point is this? After Bruce gets his record deal with Columbia, at what point are are your friends kind of you know yeah, seeing yeah, the business yeah, side well, of music? He was the first guy that we knew that got signed. And yeah, he, he gets signed, I want to say like 73, 72, 73, and does two albums, which just do nothing, no sales at all. But you were going to be part of that in the beginning, and then you were told that you weren't needed, right? Yeah, when he first gets signed, we weren't in a band at that moment. You know, it was just, a, you know, everybody was kind of doing their own thing. And 
we started putting a band together because he was signed as a folk singer. He was signed as a, as a singer-songwriter. Kind of used that as a little bit of a Trojan horse to get in. But he always had that part of him, as part of him, that would, you know, resurface later with Nebraska. But at that point, he was, was totally a band guy. So he gets signed as a singer-songwriter, but then he says, you know, surprise, <laughs> I'm a band guy. <laughs> so nobody was happy about that. The record company was not happy. The managers were not happy. And he starts putting together a band. And um, I went in there for a minute and they just decided, you know, they want to try and keep things as cheap as possible and they don't need a second guitar player. You quit music after that and went into construction, right? Yeah, yeah. It was it was a disappointing kind of moment. Half of the story, though, was I really felt like we had missed the boat. I, I, I felt that, you know, all the great stuff had been written and, and, and um, you know, we kind of just missed the renaissance, which we had. I wasn't, you know, totally devastated, but I was disappointed enough I was like, I, I just didn't see any future for me in that business. So, um, you know, I went and worked construction for two years. Yeah. And then you got injured and, in or, you know, on a jackhammer and in order to rehab yourself, what's a good exercise for the fingers, right? Yeah, no, I, I got injured playing football on the weekends, flag football. I could no longer pick up a jackhammer. So, uh, right. So I ended up, I joined a bar band as a, as a piano player. I could just, no, I could play chords. You know, I wasn't really a piano player, but I could, I could fake it. You know, that's how my life goes. Just like crazy circumstance after crazy circumstance. Turns out the drummer of that band was a cousin of one of the Dovells. We became the Dovells backup band on the, what they call the oldie circuit which really completed my education. Right. That, that year of uh, whatever that was, 73, 74. I met all the, all the pioneers of rock, which I had missed. You know, I had missed the 50s. So I got a chance to meet Little Richard and Gary Bonds and Benny King and the Drifters and, and, and you know, Coasters and Shirelles. It was, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful final part of my education. Right. You know? Right. And that education led to a few things. One, it led to you writing your own songs, but it also led to some sartorial choices where you ended up, the DeVell's tour ended in Miami. You liked the the loud shirts that you were wearing in Miami. You came back, you got a new nickname. They called you Miami Steve. You've had so many nicknames, but that's, that's one of them. I also didn't realize that you were in a car accident as a kid in high school and you bashed your head and you had, you know, one of the reasons that we always see you in a hat or, a, you know, a scarf is because of that accident. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it wasn't in high school. It was a bit, it was, it was during the upstage years in that uh, early 70s. Yeah, the, the hair never really grew in right. I started wearing bandanas and uh, that would come in handy when I started acting. You know, it was a nice little uh, bonus you know, I look very different when I'm acting, and that's easy for people to accept that character. You know? Yeah, 100%. So when you decided to write songs, you were going to write songs for your heroes. You wanted to write a Lieber and Stoller-type song for Benny King and the Drifters, and that song yeah. was I Don't Want to Go Home. And you didn't have the courage to show it to Benny King, but you did ultimately record it famously with Southside Johnny. Yeah, I, I just decided at that point, because I had been writing for years. I had been writing, trying to write songs. 
literally five, six years by then. I just never liked what I was doing and I just I couldn't relate to it. So I, I decided, you know, I'm going to go to school here. And who are the guys, the archetypes who invented songwriter producers? And it was Lieber and Stoller who, who were really the first songwriter producers. And I said, I'm going to write a Lieber and Stoller song for Benny King and the Drifters, just as they would have. And that was a big breakthrough for me. And it's the biggest breakthrough, in fact, of, of the entire concept of songwriting, one that I, I use to this day. And I, and I talk about it in my master classes when I do them. You're going to have trouble writing for yourself. Write a song for somebody else. And it really opens up your mind and, and shakes loose uh, whatever inhibitions you might have or confusion you might have. It's just easier to see in your own mind who the Beach Boys are, you know? It's pretty clear who, who they are, you know? And I, you know, so write a Beach Boys song, write a Rolling Stones song, you know, whatever it might be. It's a great exercise, first of all, but it's also, it's, gonna, it's not going to end up a Beach Boys song. It's not going to end up a Rolling Stones song. It's going to end up a, a You song. That was the first time I used that device that, uh, I, again, I, I use to this day. Well, it's such a great song. You know, in prepping for today, I took out a lot of those old records and, and listened to them. And it's just a song, you know, growing up in the tri-state area that when I listened to it recently, it just puts a, a warm smile on your face. It's a great record. You know, and you kind of imagine Benny King doing that record, but Benny King's loss was, you know, was, was Southside Johnny and, and the Asbury Jukes' gain. Band the Asbury Jukes after Little Walter and his Jukes, and Asbury Park, now this little small sleepy seaside town in, in Jersey, was being put on the map by your friend Bruce with greetings from Asbury Park. So you decided to, you know, use Asbury as part of, of the band name as well. Yeah, you know, it occurred to me, and it would occur even more so to a guy named Steve Popovich who really knew what to do with it. But it occurred to me, if we double down on this remote eccentricity, you know, this sort of uh, nowheresville, one act from somewhere is, is one thing, but two are a scene, <laughs> you know? Two it starts to feel like there's something going on there. And the guy who signed the Jukes, uh, who was, was a miracle that we, that we connected, was this guy, Steve Popovich, who... When I look back on it now, when I when I went back and wrote, you know, again, transported myself back because I never look back, but I forced myself to go back to those days. And I realized what a complete miracle this guy was mm. as a record company guy, you know, part of the biggest record company in the world, you know, you know Columbia Epic. He's encouraging us to put Lee Dorsey on the record, <laughs> you know, to get Ronnie Spector out of retirement, to reform the Drifters and Coasters and Five Satins. You know, he found Richard Barrett to play piano. All of these legendary people 
that, you know, to any other record company person, I mean, there's only one reason to have a guest on a record, which is enhance the commercial value. Correct. I mean, you're right. You know, well, none of these artists <laughs> were about to enhance the commercial value of the records. I mean, obviously, but it was going to be an educational sort right. of thing. And I wanted to show everybody that these guys were still terrific. Right. I mean, put out, put out the pasture in the prime of their lives. It's, it's one of the great tragedies of our business, of our history, that, that all the pioneers were put out of work, unintended consequence, by the Beatles. Right. And by the British invasion. Right. You know, if you had two hits when the Beatles came... You played those two hits the rest of your life. Right, you became an oldies act. Yeah, in your 30s. Right, right. <laughs> you know, in the early 40s. Right. You've done an amazing job in your career of paying it forward, whether it's Gary U.S. Bonds or whether it's Ronnie Spector or whether it's Darlene Love, of taking those special artists who influenced you and being able to work with them on new music that's going to be introduced to a new generation so that their career can continue. But you mentioned Pop. You mentioned Steve Popovich, who would later famously sign Meatloaf to his Cleveland International label, you know, one of the biggest uh, albums of all time with with the bat out of hell but i didn't realize because i always associated cleveland you know steve popovich cleveland international i didn't realize that he lived in freehold and so he was you know which is where bruce is from right around that quadrant that you mentioned of middletown freehold and asbury park so pop signs you guys to to epic and he you you mentioned that he's one of the five people you mentioned five people that changed your life, and Pop is one of them. And it sounds like it was a hell of a lot of fun making those records. I mean, the fact that part of that first album was funded by some winnings that you guys made at the Monmouth Racetrack. I mean, you can't make this shit up, right? <laughs> yeah, I've I never been a, a, a guy, you know, I, I've kind of had ADD, you know, like long before it was fashionable. And uh, I, I never wanted to wait around for lawyers and contracts. And it's, you know, that's why I always end up spending all my own money on my projects. I just I just have no patience for it. And this was a, an early example of it. Jimmy Iovine snuck us into this recording studio, the record plant, after hours. You know, he had the keys. And so we recorded after midnight, paid for by, uh, we had a good summer at the track. Me and <laughs> Southside's father was educating us. Different kind of education there, right? Yeah, that's what I call advanced mathematics. <laughs> um, you know, showing us uh, how to, you know, how to how to bet horses and look at the lineage, and <laughs> and we had a good year. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, looking back, we paid for you know most of the record, and we snuck in the other half of the record. And I wonder why I've never received any royalties from that record. (laughs) It made me me wonder about that. But we did these demos, and Pops sends them to Kid Leo in Cleveland, who was the biggest DJ on the biggest station in the country at the time. MMS was, I think, the only rock format that was number one in the market at that time. And Kid Leo was a superstar DJ. And he starts playing the demos. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, literally demos. So 
we had to like hurry up and finish the album because we're already getting airplay and we didn't even make the record yet. Wild times, wild times. Well, you talk about paying it forward. Many, many, many years later, Kid Leo would reunite with you on your underground garage, you know, Sirius channel. There, there's so many things that you have done. One of them is creating the first two original radio formats on Sirius, you know, Sirius satellite radio, which is now Sirius XM satellite radio. One, mm-hmm. you know, your format of underground garage rock called underground garage and the other one outlaw country which are two incredible channels that still sound amazing to this day and you mentioned people like andrew lugoldum and you mentioned people like kid leo who all later would play a part in these radio stations but again i'm I'm getting ahead of myself and you know so many stories not a ton of time but so while you're making these Jukes records and teaching yourself the art of record production and writing songs, and you talk about writing with purpose and that the most important parts of songwriting are the one, the title, two, the chorus, three, the opening line, like really schooling yourself and actually how these records get written, how these records get made. Meanwhile, Bruce is signed to Columbia making his own records. You officially joined the E Street Band in 19. 19- 1975. Talk about the sessions famously that became Born to Run. Well, I would just visit occasionally. You know, I wasn't in the, in the band. Uh, you know, we still had the jukes going on. And, you know, it was exciting at first that, you know, your friend gets signed. But it just so happens the 70s was just a very weird time to record. A lot of studios were using a lot of padding and it was just a weird moment. It's probably the only time in the history of recording where the engineers kind of took over and started insisting on separation and uh, control. You know, uh, 24 tracks had just come in, which already was a huge amount of controlling and and decision-making that never had been there. You know, when it was two track and four track and even eight tracks, you had to make decisions on the spot. You know, you couldn't keep everything. Starting with, you know, 24 tracks, now you could keep things and and decide later. Suddenly the mix became a thing. And what they were doing, and I swear to God, this is true, they would take all the excitement out of recording (laughs) and then put it back in in the mix. That was the concept. So they'd have complete control, mm-hmm. which is exactly what rock and roll does not like. Right. Okay. Rock and roll likes noise. It likes <laughs> spontaneity. It, it likes leakage. Right. <laughs> you know, it likes tubes. <laughs> it doesn't like it. It never got used to digital. I don't care what anybody says. Right. <laughs> you know, it never even got used to stereo, to right. tell you the truth. Right. But, uh, you know, so suddenly, you know, so I'm in the studio, you know, and it's so exciting. My friend finally got signed. I'm in the studio and I'm like, man, this kind of sucks, you know? <laughs> it just didn't sound good, you know what I mean? Because you expect to walk into the room and hear what you would hear if you walk into a club, you right. know, in right. my mind. Right. Which, which we would do later with the river. Right. But that was my my goal. My ambition was to make the record sound like we sound live, you know, which we finally accomplished 
five albums right. later, <laughs> you know, that's why it's the fifth, it's right. the fifth craft, right. one of the five crafts of rock and roll. The fifth is learning how to record. Right. At first it was, uh, it was no fun, you know. And uh, but with Born to Run, even though you weren't part of the band officially, you know Bruce credits you with helping to come up with the guitar line on on the song Born to Run, and you also famously arranged the horns on Tenth Avenue Freeze Out. <laughs> fingerprints are a big part of that classic album yeah yeah a little bit yeah i mean i didn't i didn't come up with the guitar riff for born to run i i that, you know that would have been something else he says you were partially responsible for the signature guitar line so we'll leave it at that yeah because it, it was just a, it was just a weird moment where they had been working on it for a long time you know i mean like months on one song so what they thought they were hearing, they were not really hearing. And I, and I walked in and, and I and I, I I noticed that uh, he was he was just bending one note in the riff, right? And you could hear where he was bending the note from, but you didn't really hear where he was bending the note to, right? So it changed a major riff into a minor riff. Got it. You know, mm-hmm. the only reason why it, it got fixed because I was complimenting him, <laughs> which I liked. I liked the minor. He was like, what do you mean? I'm not doing that. Right. He says, well, what, what, what minor riff? You know? <laughs> and, I, and I said, it's clear as day, the minor riff. And, and you know, finally, they, they heard what I was talking about. So they had, to, they had to remix it and re-record all the guitars, and it was a big deal. The album Born to Run comes out, you join the band, and those tours supporting the Born to Run album, whether it was the Bottom Line shows or the Roxy shows or the London shows, you know, these are stuff of legend. You know, were you realizing at the time that this thing was actually gelling, that your buddy Bruce was putting together this band that was almost like a, you know, an homage, a hat tip to the classic bands of the 60s that you guys grew up with, and now you're part of it? We didn't realize how much of an anomaly we were. You know, we were really a Jersey bar band that had been playing a long time. Similar to the Beatles, when we discovered the Beatles halfway through their career, by then we had been playing, uh, making our living in clubs and bars, you know, 10 years. Right. That's a long time. Right. We just came on stage and just blasted them like we were, still playing a, a, a dance club. And I think that energy, that energy of being a dance band, I think propelled that energy. And I, I think it was the same case with the Beatles and Stones and the Who, the Kinks, the Animals, all of the British Invasion bands, they were all dance bands. Right. 
Well, they all, you know, you had to make people dance in those days. That's what it was all about, really. And so when you get into a concert situation, you still have that same energy coming from pulling people out of their seats and right. making them dance. Right. You know? And I think that's what separated us from the pack. A little extra energy. Well, you guys had put in your 10,000 hours, as they say, like the Beatles did in Hamburg, like, you know, you guys did on, on the Jersey Shore. And then the, the trick becomes capturing that energy on record. So you mentioned yeah. The River. The River is the first album that you formally co-produce with Bruce. Right. And he asked you in because you were like, look, I know how this should sound. And he gives you a seat at the table and you make the record together. Yeah, he knew I was a band guy, you know, I mean, that's that's exclusively what I am, even though I would end up making solo records. But even the solo records were kind of band records in their own way. You know, my my, my consciousness was a band consciousness. And uh, and that's what we needed at that time. You know, we needed to try and find a way to capture because we had a big reputation live right from right from day one, as you said, as you as you suggest. So that's five years in now. You know, we're really, really, really great live. Darkness was a big disappointment to me. Uh, you know, I thought it was his, his best material. And to this day, it's some of his best material. And I just thought, geez, it just sounds terrible. And I, I tried to get him, get him to let me remix it when it was re-released, you know, 30 years later. And he was like, are you out of your fucking... <laughs> 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 but but uh, but uh, but we you know you can see you can hear the difference you know you listen to darkness you know which we've all gotten used to and it's it's fine it's fine <laughs> but but but, but, he, but you know you listen to the difference in the river it's, it's a big difference. Well, one of the things that you brought to the table as a, a co-producer on that album is you say in the book that one of my gifts is finishing songs other people start. Give me 30 seconds and I can hear the whole thing. So if Bruce comes in with an idea, like an idea for a song called Hungry Heart, you can envision what that record, that song needs to sound like as a record to actually become a hit. And it was. You bring in Flo and Eddie from the Turtles to sing background. Talk about that. It's one of my gifts that's, you know, mostly useless, but occasionally comes in handy. I really love arranging, and, and it's a, my, my first love. Uh, again, that's one of the great lost crafts of rock and roll. I'm the king of modulation. I, I, love, I love modulating. I just, you know, I, I do it all the time, and, and I did it in Hungry Heart. You know, that the solo modulates to another key. I love surprising people with the arrangements. You know, you want to keep surprising them. You want to add something every verse. You want to change the dynamics. You know, you want to modulate. You want to go go strange places, you know, and then have an interesting way of getting back if you want to come back. All those kind of fun things. Yeah, Hungry Heart was one of them. That modulation for that, for that solo, uh, you know, lifts it up. And the background vocal parts are really key to bringing that to the forefront of, of pop radio at the time. You mentioned yeah. those harmony vocals earlier that inspired you. Was that the inspiration to go and, and get these guys to sing on the record? 
I had just seen their show fairly, you know, recently before that. They did a show at the bottom line. Unfortunately, it's no longer there. And the show was just terrific. I think they did a, a bit in the show where they were doing like Beach Boys harmonies or or, or, or I don't know. But I, I know, I just knew, I, Bruce even may have mentioned he, he, he could hear Beach Boys harmonies. And I had heard them do something like that. So I said, let's let's bring them in and and uh, and see what happens, you know. And and, uh, and, it, and it worked. Yeah, yeah, it really worked. Yeah, big hit record. I remember as a kid growing up in the tri-state area, hearing "Hungry Heart" back in the late days of AM radio, early days of FM radio, and it just you know putting a smile on your face and saying, "Yeah, that sounds like a hit record." I've heard of this Bruce Springsteen guy. It's nice to hear him on my favorite pop radio station now. Yeah, it's a big discussion in the book about having a hit record at the right time in those days. Right. You know, having a hit record was not in and of itself necessarily a good career move at a certain point. If albums became the currency and, and singles for a while went out of fashion. So you had to be very careful about it. Well, at that point, we needed a, a hit single to kind of, you know, we were doing very well live, but we just needed something to kick it into the next level. Right. And so, well, uh, you know, we bring in, you know, Flo and Eddie and, uh, and, and then it needed one more thing, you know, the, the record was not quite yet a hit in my mind, you know, but it was close. But I thought, you know, he had developed this, this big voice in the Born to Run into Darkness period. You know, he had several, he had a lot of different voices, but one of them was like a bigger voice that he had developed. And I thought, this is, you know, I really would like him to sound, you know, smaller, a little bit smaller, a little bit younger, you know, because pop music is, you know, teenage girls, basically, you know, you don't want to scare them <laughs> if you can help it. <laughs> and he was a little scary at that point, you know, so so I sped the record up one night, you know, I said, well, I know how to shrink his voice. I'll speed the record up. And there was so far you could go. And still be believable, you know, that it's still him, you know, before it turns into the chipmunks, you know, hmm. <laughs> they had had hit records back, back before that. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I, I sped it up and his voice became, you know, younger and smaller and, and thinner, which I felt made it more commercial. But he didn't like that, did he? Well, he, he did, but he thought I went too far. <laughs> So he backed it off one notch, right? And then when Charlie um, mastered it, he, he turned it up a notch. So it was back to how you wanted it, right? Yeah. And, and then the success of Hungry Heart, you write in the book, was able to vault the band into, you know, solid sold-out arena headliner status because you had the right pop hit with the right album fan foundation. So your timing issue was, was correct. Yeah, it was just happened to be one of those songs. And I felt this the moment I heard it is something about it that doesn't suggest you're trying to get a hit single. You know, you know, what I mean, you're, you're selling out as it was called right. back then. Right. It just seemed to fit. You know, everybody has a hungry heart. There's just something about that line and that title. Uh, it's universal. Yeah. Yeah. But it also fit that kind of working class, you know, uh, identity. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know what I mean? So it fit in enough where I felt that that made sense 
it would be the opposite of when, you know, when I first heard Dancing in the Dark, which, you know, I, I try to talk him into taking off the record. Right. It's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing he didn't listen to you. But yeah, um, so you mentioned you mentioned Dancing in the Dark, which obviously is famously the first single from Born in the USA. The same production team of you and Bruce with with John Landau sitting there for conversation and observation returns to make the Born in the USA album, you know, arguably Bruce's most successful album commercially. What was that process like? You know, there there is a bit of a fissure happening between you and Bruce. You probably know that you're not long for the world. The song Bobby Jean famously is about you guys splitting up. What was it like making that record that differentiates it from making The River? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, let me just say that John was doing more than just talking. I mean, he is very, very musical himself. Well, he's a great record producer in his own right. He produced those great MC5 records. Just, just, just so people understand that, the, the, while the conversations were, turned out to be extremely important, he was also quite musical. The difference was we had taken a big leap on the river towards recording live. The tracks were all live, but we still were doing some overdubs. And we just went the final step. No particular reason, to be honest. I mean, uh, looking back on it now, it's like... So what? But we took the final step on the nine or 10 out of 12 songs that I produced that I was there for. We went all the way live, no overdubs. So that was the only difference. I mean, literally glory days, I pick up the mandolin off the chair and play it into my vocal mic uh, for the solo. Glory days, yeah. If Bruce wanted to sing it again, we played it again. Right. That's how nutty we got. Right. You know, and then and then he took two years after that to do Bobby Jean and Dancing in the Dark. Right. And uh, uh, No Surrender. Right. So you leave the E Street Band in 1984, and you give out some advice in the book, some from that moment of leaving the band. After you and Bruce have your first fight, you leave the E Street Band, and you say in the book, never ever leave your power base until you've secured a new one. Yeah, that's good advice if you can stick to it. <laughs> no matter what your job is, doesn't matter what your job is. If you've achieved some level of success in a job, don't take it for granted is the bottom line. So this kind of throws you into a whole new world where you're not really sure what's next because you've spent all this time, you know, in the studio with Bruce, on the road with Bruce. One influence that we haven't talked about is the influence of Bob Dylan in your life. And Bob Dylan, 
famously shows up in your book. You say your encounters with Bob are brief and bizarre, but always interesting. And you talk about the two most important sentences in the history of rock that are, in your opinion, Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine, and I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. And you call that the politics meets pop shot heard around the world, you know, not to be confused with the Beatles shot heard around the world. But this influences perhaps your political side. So why don't you mention Dylan's influence on you a little bit? His lyrics in general had started to bring a a whole nother dimension to pop music, which is what it was up until Bob Dylan started influencing the Beatles and Stones and the Birds and the Who and the Kinks. And somewhere around 1965, you know, you could clock it from wherever you want to clock it. Most uh, start to recognize it as an art form in 67 with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Arts Club Band. In actual fact, 65 is really when the art form started to coalesce. You had help, you had satisfaction, you had Like a Rolling Stone, and you had uh, Mr. Tambourine Man that summer of 65. And you have now the birth of a new art form. What distinguishes an art form from pop music was the personal nature of the lyrics and the subject matter of the lyrics started to become more broad, you know, including social concerns and political concerns, which Bob brought from the folk world and right. from the blues world, right. you know, the blues right. and folk, you know, that was a normal, a normal part of blues and folk. And Bob had just completely transformed the, the entire folk world with his previous three, four albums. And, and just when they got used to him, you know, and, and, and recognized uh, his, his, his amazing greatness, he plugs in and pisses them all off. <laughs> uh, but but uh, he, really, he really had a rock and roll heart all the way. That's why he, to this day, he's really the only folk singer I completely relate to. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I think he's just different. You know, he has a he has a rock and roll kind of consciousness within that folk genre. But that line in Subterranean Homesick Blues, which was on the, what, the fifth, fifth album, right? Uh-huh. Bring it all back home. It summed up Bob's entire sort of thing. You know, the first line being just some kind of, I mean, he's bringing in beat poetry. He's bringing in symbolism and metaphor, you know, along with the personal nature of the lyrics. I mean, he's, transforming, you know, letting people know what, what's possible right. in the lyrics. I mean, Chuck Berry had invented it, okay? Chuck Berry had established the storytelling nature sure. of the art form, okay? But Bob now is taking it to this, some, some new level. You know, Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means whatever you want it to mean, which was Bob's intention, right? Let's start having some fun with the words, you right. know? And I list a whole bunch of things that it could have been in the book beat poetry, street poetry, the idiom of the street, symbolism, blah, 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 all in that, all in those first two lines. And then I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. I was like, what? You know, no one ever said anything like that in in the pop world ever. Okay. Why on earth would you be thinking about the government? Right. You know, what does that mean? You know, well, that he meant literally. Okay, so he goes from this symbolism, fun metaphor, whatever you want to call it, poetry thing to hardcore and then goes on with the rest of the song. Right. Telling every teenager 
exactly what's about to happen in their lives. Right. I right. mean, it's an, it's an amazing song telling, you know, look out, kid, you know, you're going to get hit, right. you know? You don't know why, you don't know when, but right. you're doing it again. You know, they're all, you know, it's amazing. So he issues in this era of social consciousness and pop music that leads to, you, you mentioned what's going on, Marvin Gaye, the George Harrison's concert for Bangladesh, whether it's, you know, Neil Young's Ohio or Buffalo Springfield for what it's worth. But music that could actually affect social change and ultimately change the world, and which is a good lead into your work against apartheid. How did you come to say, you know what, I'm going to do something? You know, you you hear about what's going on in South Africa, and you say, "I'm going to use my music to try to affect change." Yeah, at first, it was simply a matter of growing up in that Renaissance period of the '60s when everybody had a distinct identity, and now I'm in this position of doing solo albums, and I thought, "Well, what's going to be my distinct identity?" You know, I had gotten into politics; I'd gotten into reading books for the first time in my life, which I talk about the whole transition. And I said, well, I'll be the political guy. You know, nobody else is doing that full time. So I'll, I'll, do, I'll do that. And so I became this sort of artist slash journalist, which would change. And I know the moment it changed was on the flight to South Africa. I'm trying to summarize here, but I, I, I listed like the 40 conflicts we were engaged in. I was basically studying um, American foreign policy since World War II, uh, educating myself about what's going on in the world. And uh, we were like, there was 40, 42, 44 conflicts that we were engaged in or associated with. And one of them was South Africa. And I just couldn't find out much about it. You know, conventional wisdom was reforms were going on down there. And, but it was just vague. And so I decided, you know, I, I got to go down there and check it out. So on that plane flight is when I realized, you know, I, I had done two albums while Bruce was finishing Born in the USA. I produced most of it left and did two albums and two world tours, came back, he's still working on the record <laughs> and, and, to get those last three songs. <laughs> anyway, so I, so now I officially leave the band, you know, and, and it hits me on that flight to South Africa that I had just not just uh, changed jobs. I just ended my life. 15 years I worked to get to the point where we could make a living playing rock and roll. And I just walked away from it. After 15 years of work, I had nothing in my mind at that point other than South Africa. So I, I think it caused me to delve even deeper into that subject than maybe I would have uh, had I not left the band at right. that point. And you know, now destiny really starts kicking in. Yep. And I go from being an artist slash journalist to an artist, journalist, activist. Uh -huh. And you record a song. Uh, called Sun City, which is a song recorded to bring awareness to the situation in South Africa. You name the group Artists United Against Apartheid. You're joined by a who's who of stars, Bruce, Run DMC, Miles Davis, Ringo Starr, Bob Dylan, Bono, Lou Reed, Pete Townsend.
guys end up raising over a million dollars to fight apartheid. And, you know, the song, it's been said, quote, played a part in the broad international effort to overthrow apartheid. And years later, you get to meet Nelson Mandela. I mean, talk about, you know, life imitating art. First of all, it was there was four of us equally important. We must say Danny Schechter, who basically publicized the thing or else nobody would have heard of it. Arthur Baker, who supplied his phone book, which is the entire roster of that album. There would have been nobody on it if not for Arthur. And and Hart Perry, who filmed it all, or else nobody would have heard about it. Right. Because radio wouldn't play it. The only way people heard it was by MTV and BET playing the video, which I talked them into doing when they're in the middle of their, you know, racial problems. At that time, MTV was accused of not playing enough black artists. And, you know, I kind of got in the middle of that and um, worked it to, to our favor. <laughs> like I said, there's more black artists in this video than, than you'll play in the next 10 years. First of all, we didn't intend to raise money. That was a bonus. Unlike the other African records, you know, the, the Christmas uh, Geldof's record right. and, and Quincy right. Jones, those were intended to raise money for, for food and, and, and all that. Ours was strictly about consciousness. We happened to raise a million dollars, which went to a good cause, you know, but it was mostly about consciousness raising because our president at the time, Reagan and Thatcher in England and Cole in Germany, all supported this apartheid regime. Right. We knew that the sanctions bill, which was going to eventually get written and come across Reagan's desk, we knew he would veto it. And in order to override a Reagan veto, which had never been done, we had to raise a lot of consciousness because it wasn't an issue in America. People may find it hard to believe, but it, it really wasn't. A couple of people were, tr- were trying to make it an issue. Certainly Harry Belafonte and uh, Randall Robinson and a few others. Stevie Wonder would mention it, but it wasn't it just wasn't catching on. It wasn't an issue, you know, so we had to take go from scratch, make it an issue. And then get enough consciousness raised where the Congress would override a Reagan veto which we ended up doing. Amazing. Uh, we, were, we were able to do that, and, and uh, including Republican votes, believe it or not, who were voting to help black people in South Africa be able to vote. Right. Of course, Republicans are doing everything they can to keep American black people from voting. I'll show you how things have changed. When you can use art to affect real change, real social change, real global change. I mean, talk about, you know, that's what Dylan was talking about. You, you know, have the power to do it and your proof of concept, you did it. You know, what an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, it was lucky, uh, good timing. You know, you couldn't do it now, I'll tell you that, you know, no way. So it was very, very lucky timing. We kind of snuck up on them. They didn't see us coming, you know. Uh, they were very, very arrogant, very uh, self-confident. Right. And why not? They had the United States, right. England and Germany supporting them. Right. Uh, you know, we kind of we kind of snuck in there and got them. But, uh, you know, that's all due 100 percent to Bob Dylan. Right. 100%. Well, you talk about timing playing a real important part of your life. You mentioned five people who 
are the most important figures in your life. Frank Barcelona, the legendary booking agent who basically invented modern touring, being one of them. And the timing of Frank Barcelona and you discussing getting the Young Rascals or the Rascals into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that ends up happening. He convinces you to induct the Rascals. You give a great speech having no idea that there's a television creator watching you, which led to another part of your life, famously. Crazy life, huh? <laughs> when you go back and look at it, it's like, whoa, I wouldn't have believed this if it didn't happen to me. Again, he's just flicking around with his remote. If he had been on a different channel, well, it would never have happened. Let's tell everybody who he is. Oh, so sorry. David Chase, the creator of Sopranos, happened to be flicking around and happened to be a Rascals fan. Because uh, he caught the Rascals uh, montage. You know, they do like a, a, a video thing before you come on stage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to induct the artist. They do a little, a little video uh, montage. And, and, he, and he was like, what, what's, what's this? Why, why are the Rascals you know, on TV? And I came on. I did a little three, four minute uh, kind of comedy routine. And, uh, and he happened to catch it. And he was looking for different faces. He wanted he wanted to do something different on TV. He had been in TV his whole life, and he was ready to move to movies. He you know been wanting to do a movie for a long time. He had one more idea for TV, and he was just going to break all the rules. You know he didn't care anymore, and he broke all the rules and reinvented the TV in the process. And he originally he originally auditioned you to play the lead, Tony Soprano, right? Yeah, actually, I actually got the part. And uh, HBO was like, you know, are you crazy? <laughs> are you out of your mind? <laughs> you know, this is going to be a big expense for us. So, uh, yeah, yeah. He said, well, no, they're not going to let me cast you as Tony. What else do you want to do? I said, well, I, I, you know, now that I think about it, I, I really feel guilty taking an actor's job. You know, these guys work their whole lives. He said, OK, well, in that case, I'll write you in a part that doesn't exist because I want you in the show. And I said, all right, well, you know. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I have a treatment about this guy, Silvio Dante, who runs a Copacabana type of club, but it's set in present day. He kind of lives in the past. He's an independent hitman and, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, that's interesting. And he comes back a couple of days later, says, no, nah, we can't afford the uh, Copacabana, but we'll make it a strip club. So you're partially responsible for the creation of the Bada Bing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then famously, you know, people say that there's only one person in the world who has been consigliere to the original two Jersey bosses. And that's, you know, that's you. Yeah. And what, well, I think what's most interesting about this is uh, all David really came up with was, well, OK, you'll run a strip club for the family, kind of a front, because in the back room will be the office, the clubhouse, you know, for the gang. And didn't think too much past that, really, you know. And what's fascinating to me, looking back on it now, and I, I don't even think this is in the book, as detailed as David Chase was and is, he did not write in. An underboss, he did not write in a consigliere. Sometimes they're two different guys. Sometimes they're the same guy in the mob world. But he, there was nobody in that part. Okay? So by the end of the first season, 
I, it just kind of drifted, you know, maybe they picked up on me and Jimmy's relationship off screen or something, but I slowly ended up in that role of, of the consigliere uh, slash uh, underboss of the family. But it wasn't originally written that way. You know, it just kind of, it just kind of evolved that way in some fascinating way. And then you were able to springboard off of this role as an actor on The Sopranos and go to another upstart, an upstart technology company called Netflix and pitch an idea for a show that you had been working on in Norway called Lilyhammer, right? Yeah, we just started it and it was a local show. You know, they said they wrote it for me, which is nice for my ego. Uh, we had spent a year writing it, and, and then uh, about, I don't know, three, four weeks in, five weeks in, I realized we, we, we can't afford to shoot the show that we wrote. So I called the agent. I said, book a few things in L.A. because uh, I got to make an American deal here in order to afford this budget. And we, and we booked stars first because uh, I knew uh, Chris uh, Albrecht from, from, from uh, HBO, right. Yeah, he had come from HBO and, and was involved early on with Sopranos. So he had now taken over stars. I put together a quick, like a trailer, because we didn't have a completed episode yet. And he loved it. And uh, he said, what do you need? I said, well, I need at least a million dollars an episode because, you know, they gave me a reality budget over there. And we're competing with three, four million dollar dramas in America, in America you know. And they were like, it's 750000 You know, I'm, I'm like, I, I need at least a million. And he said, I, I don't have it in the budget. I'll give you $2 million next year, you know. I said, well, we, we, we already started filming. You know, I got, I, I got to make a move here. So he says, all right, well, let me know what happens. And, and, and just so happened, like right across the street was this new thing called Netflix I had heard about. So, you know, I call up and... Uh, I just, you know, just spontaneously, hey, uh, I'd, I'd seen his name, you know, I'd seen the Ted Sarandos' name. You know, like, uh, can I talk to Ted? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, he, <laughs> he gets right on the phone, you know, and uh, I said, what are, you, what are you doing? He said, yeah, we're going to start doing original content. I said, well, I got something. You interested? He says, yeah, come on over. So I walk in, there's like two people there. And they had signed a house of cards, but it was delayed and it was not going to be ready. So, uh, I mean, it was the greatest business deal of my life. Uh, it was like $20 million in, 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 a, in a one hour meeting. Uh, he gave me two seasons, which I think uh, maybe historically, you know, maybe the first time in history, anybody gave a two year deal to a TV show. Even successful TV shows don't get a two year deal. And that, and that ended up being the first original show produced by Netflix because House of Cards was produced externally, right? Well, no, it just came second. Right. You know, yeah, we, we, we ended up first, then House of Cards, then Orange is the New Black. Right. Uh, and, and, and by then they started taking over the world. It was, it was like a rocket ship. Man. All three seasons of Lilyhammer are, 
are there. They're wonderful. They're on, you know, Netflix. You could decide to do a deep dive on Little Steven's uh, acting or his music or his incredible book. Here it is called Unrequited Infatuations. I really appreciate you coming in and spending some time with us. I know you're doing a lot of these, so I appreciate you making time for us. The last thing that I would close with is at the very end of the book, at the end of the thank yous, you say as, as kind of your farewell that I continue my lifelong quest to break even or at the very least find a steady job. I think you've done pretty good, Stephen. Yeah, I'm not complaining. I'm just, uh, <laughs> you know, I would like to, you know, you know, maybe uh, sometime in the future have a steady job. It would be nice. Well, whatever you do, we're going to be watching. Thank you for the incredible art that you've shared with us and has been the soundtrack of all of our lives. And also, you know, whether on music, live, or um, on screen. So thank you, little Stephen. Appreciate it. My pleasure, my friend. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot to Steve Van Zandt for joining us this week. You can dive into his online world at littlesteven.com, and don't forget to catch his Underground Garage radio show on Sirius XM or online at undergroundgarage.com. And make sure to pick up his New York Times best-selling memoir, Unrequited Infatuations. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganvard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on.